And welcome, friends, to the Generations Broadcast. Kevin Swanson, your host with you, Adam McManus from theworldview.com, our co-host on this edition. And today we're coming back to popular culture, largely because popular culture has such an influence upon the mind of the modern. Each successive generation has been so much influenced by popular culture, much more so than education, for the most part. Popular culture has an influence upon the way our children dress, the way they think, the way they do their music, and every other part of life. Now, I was a disc jockey back in the 1980s, did 50 stations, country stations, some adult contemporary news stations, that sort of thing, back in the 1980s, out on the central coast of California. And do you miss it? Spinning the records? Hey, Miss Radio, I'm still doing it with Adam (laughs) McManus. What are you talking about? This doesn't count. It's not music. (laughs) it's all right it's all right it's a means of communication uh and you know i'm not against music i just think we need to be very discerning that's why i wrote the book the tattoo jesus what the real jesus would do with popular culture and here is a picture of americana these men were raised in the soul of the american heartland i'm talking about johnny cash elvis and jerry lee lewis They led the American pop generation in the 1950s and 1960s. They were from the South. They represented deep Southern culture. And they crossed over into the rock and roll genre. That's Elvis, Johnny Cash, and Jerry Lee Lewis. They were crossovers, country and rock. Now, what's the big takeaway? A couple of big takeaways. We're going to look at Jerry Lee Lewis in just a moment. But America has... A Christian past. America has very deep Christian roots. There's no getting around that fact. And yet you have this tendency for the younger generation to rebel and to pull away from these Christian roots. And that is something of the story of Elvis, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Johnny Cash. Recently we talked about the life of Elvis and the professed faith of Elvis Presley. Did a whole program on that. But today we're going to take a look at Jerry Lee Lewis. Adam Jerry Lee Lewis. An icon for the formation of rock and roll in the 1950s. I think it represents the American story. You talk about a character. He was it. Known as the killer. And this is not some figurative reference. He literally went to strangle a teacher. And that's why he got the nickname. One shot his bass player in the chest. He had seven wives, four divorces. Obviously, a number of these wives met their demise. Some in accidents and some in more scary circumstances, but he grew up a very talented piano player. He was able to hear a song one time and literally play it by ear. His father was so committed to ensuring that Jerry Lee Lewis explore his musical passion that he literally mortgaged the family farm to get him his first piano, and boy, did he tear it up and tore his life up as well. He was a a very maniacal man. Vulture.com, the fascinating article, very detailed, written by Bill Wyman, says that he was a thief, a bigamist, an adulterer, a sexual predator, a family abandoner, and a liar. I mean, that's some resume, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) exactly. Yeah, a fallen son of Adam, for sure. And uh, yet he had a profession of faith of sorts. Of sorts, a conscience that, that, that dragged on with him for his entire career. He went to Southwestern Bible Institute in Texas at one point in his teens, enrolled there, became convicted of 
there being a God and a sense of accountability before God in the face of all of his very demonstrable sin. In a report of a conversation with the guardian, he said, I was always worried whether I was going to heaven or hell. I still am. I worry about it before I go to bed. It's a very serious situation. I mean, you worry when you breathe your last breath, where are you going to go? Toward the end of the interview, as we pointed out in a recent Worldview newscast, just about as many hours as there are in the day, I pray. I pray all the time. I'm not too much on fear. I love God. I love Jesus Christ, and I worship the precious, precious, precious Holy Ghost. But boy, did he have a very uh, dark past, including a number of very odd and questionable marriages. Uh, In 1976, this was an interesting story. He was drunk, drove to Graceland, Elvis Presley's mansion, rammed the gate with his Lincoln, emerged from the car half-dressed and bleeding, brandishing a gun, saying, you tell him the killer is here. That's what he said to the guards. Presley told his guards to call the police. Lewis was arrested that same year, drunk on his 41st birthday. We alluded to this at the top of the program. He was playing around with a 357 revolver and accidentally shot his bass player in the chest. I believe he made a full recovery. But he, like Willie Nelson, has had his battles with the IRS. They would periodically raid his house, cart off most of his possessions to sell at auction. Never seemed to learn his lesson. One time they did the same to one of his estranged wives. And in 1984, Vulture notes he was tried on tax charges, not convicted, but still left with a $600,000 bill. He declared bankruptcy, citing $4 million in debts. His lawyers were having a difficult time, Kevin, explaining to a judge why he was purportedly too sick to come to court, but not too sick to embark on a new concert tour. In the 1980s, journalists were describing Jerry Lee Lewis as frail, noting the debilitating effects, the drinking, the pills and other drugs had on him. Uh, Sadly, his own son, at the age of three, died by drowning in the family swimming pool. So he had certainly his fair share of pain and sorrow, much of it self-inflicted. But I think you have framed this conversation in an interesting way in that it is a snapshot of Americana in terms of our own rebellion as a people, and yet our acknowledgement that there is a God and we are accountable to him. You were telling me off air that there was just this genuine thirst for God and a relationship with him, but frankly, Lewis was not well served by the church and the theology that he was exposed to, was he? Yeah, that, that would be my take. Now, God, by his common grace, gave this man 87 years, which it's got to be a record for a rock and roller. He is the <laughs> yeah, last man is. standing in the foundation of rock and roll, and he made it through 87 years of this. And that itself, to me, indicates the mercy of God upon this man. So, you know, to step back and see some of this, and it acknowledge that you know god is gracious and uh, but there is no minimizing the unleashing of a sexual revolution that came by these rock and rollers no escaping the conclusion uh it's interesting also recent surveys found the raunchiest music is r&b pop and hip-hop hip-hop by far the worst out of 200 songs r&b songs analyzed sex and love mentioned over 800 times now country turns out to be worse than the rock and roll format at least presently but that's not the way it was in 1950. 
Now, of course, eventually you get to Leroy Van Dyke, uh, Walk On By, which is one of the first songs relating to adultery in the country format. Would have come out, I'm going to say, about 1963. But in the 1950s, it's popular rock and roll that's that's taking this step. The Wall Street Journal did an entire article on this, uh, speaking of Elvis, more so than Jerry Lee Lewis, but they were breaking the social morays. In the 1950s, the dance floor fast became ground zero for the breakdown of sexual barriers. This is Wall Street Journal. In the early part of that decade, there was still a certain level of decorum on the dance floor. The man led and the partners kept a respectable distance from each other. Rock and roll appropriated from the black R&B underground by artists like Elvis Introduced to the mainstream, white suburban culture changed all of that. Teenagers were excited by this new kind of dancing. Parents were horrified. By the time the executives of CBS decreed that Elvis could only be filmed from the waist up, it was too late. Teens had started moving to the rhythms of rock and roll. A new cultural phenomenon sprang up and American Bandstand was there to televise it. Teens rushed home to learn the latest steps. Hear the newest songs. American Bandstand gave the sexual revolution a little shove when it aired Chubby Checker. Showing the youth of America how to do the twist. Dancing continued to make cultural waves. 1960s go-go girls gave way to 1970s disco. That music sprang from black, Latino, and gay underground clubs combined with the introduction of the pill and illicit recreational drugs. Create a combustible mix. Inhibitions were abandoned at the doors of clubs like Studio 54 and dance floors began pits of hedonism. And on and on it goes. Now, some have also said that uh, that Elvis was expressing the unrestrained religious ecstasy from his Pentecostal background, thinking that what the, what happened was Elvis took the unrestrained religious ecstasy from Pentecostalism and transferred it to a more carnal application. So that's interesting. You know, there are different explanations for what was going on with Jerry Lee Lewis and Elvis. Now, uh, the conscience can still dog a man for a lifetime, and I think that's what we find with Jerry Lee Lewis, and that ties into some of the comments that you made. There was also a degree of apostasy where these guys pulled away from their early Christian roots. Now, I give them a bit of a break, as you just mentioned, and here's why. Because I do believe that these men received something of a fairly cheap Christianity in their younger years that doesn't really feature much of the gospel the importance of the local church, and the law of God as a standard of ethics. And, and, and when you got huge chunks of Christian truth missing uh, from the fair that's coming out of these fairly shallow Christian traditional churches of the South in the 1940s and 1950s, seems to me that uh, there is a tremendous amount of ignorance with these Southern boys raised on weak Pentecostal and semi-Pelagian theology. There's also, here, let me end with this, because we need to take a break, and I want to talk about Johnny Cash in just a moment. There was a terrible cocktail mixture of demonic temptations that come with three things. Now, this is the cocktail of the three things coming together, and that is fame, the mass opportunity for sexual sin, and drugs and alcohol. That, to me, forms a devastating cocktail, and I'll tell you what, Elvis, Johnny Cash, and Jerry Lee Lewis took their maximum sip of that cocktail. An addiction forms to all of it at the same time, that fame, sex, and drugs comes together. And don't negate the demonic element. Here's a very interesting conversation that Jerry Lee Lewis has with Sam Phillips in 1958 in Sun Studios. And yes, yeah, Sam Phillips is his producer. And let me just give a piece of this. 
for our listening audience before we take the break, because I think this gives you something of an insight of these men who are raised with a basically Christian outlook on things, but they were turning away from it. And there was a, certainly something of an apostasy from this rather shallow form of Christianity. And uh, let me just play this uh, on one of our inputs for this edition of the program. Now listen, I'm telling you out of my heart, and I have studied the Bible a little bit. Well, I have too. I've I studied it through and through and through, through and Jerry. Jerry, when you listen, when you think that you can't can't do good, you're a rock and roll exposed. You can do good, Mr. Phillips. Don't wait get me wrong. Wait a minute. Now, what a, I mean, I say do you good. You can have a kind heart. I don't mean. I don't mean. You can help you people. You can save souls. No. 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 Yes, you let them make it. How can the how can the devil save so? What are you talking about? Man, I got the devil in me. If I didn't have, I'd be a Christian. Well, you may have it. Jesus healed this man. He cast the devil out. The devil says, "Where can I go?" He says, "Can I go into this swine now?" He says, "Yeah, go into." All right, that's all I'm going to play. <laughs> the conversation goes on for about four minutes in the Sun Studios. This was recorded in 1958. Very interesting. Uh, it appears that Sam Phillips, producer, and Jerry Lee both have something of a biblical background. But there's no question, no question, that at this point, Jerry Lee Lewis is asking the question, how can the devil save souls, meaning himself? Man, I have the devil in me. All right, well, that, my friends, was the problem. We're going to talk about this more in just a moment on the Generations Broadcast. What happens when a culture that was established and guided by biblical principles abandons the faith and seeks to live by its own wisdom? In his latest groundbreaking work, Epic, The Rise and Fall of the West, Kevin Swanson unfolds the dramatic history of Western civilization, highlighting the phenomenal impact that Jesus Christ and His people have had upon the thought, culture, and institutions of the Christian West, as well as tracing the slow but devastating decline of Western civilization and the key factors that have led to our spectacular fall over the centuries. A sobering narrative of gospel hope This book urges its reader to greater fervency in the work of discipleship and the development of an international vision for the church. This is truly a must-read for any Christian seeking to understand the times and seasons in which we live. You can claim your hardcover copy of Epic, The Rise and Fall of the West by visiting generations.org slash store today. That's generations.org slash store. And we are back on the Generations broadcast. We discuss very important, significant American cultural leaders that represent Americana. This is an American story. The story of Elvis Presley. The story of Jerry Lee Lewis. The story of Johnny Cash. What's interesting about Johnny Cash is he has such a strong gospel background. Now, most of these other singers did as well. They, they developed their singing, piano playing instrumentation in their local churches. 
Now, it's also interesting to me, I've traveled the world over the last number of years, and I am still surprised as to how many pastors and church leaders in other countries where I meet other leaders, places like Brazil, Myanmar, Russia, etc., these people know who Johnny Cash is. They listen to Johnny Cash's gospel songs to this day. It's interesting. His gospel music has such a cross-cultural appeal. To this very day, it's surprising to me. But wow, what a platform Johnny Cash had when he shared his faith in such a way. Yeah, and I'd like to go over some of his information. Johnny Cash's story, probably the most interesting in a lot of ways. I want to summarize three biographies and autobiographies on the life of Johnny Cash. Greg Laurie's book, somebody handed it to me about a year ago. It's a gift. Johnny Cash, The Redemption of an American Icon. That's a Greg Laurie wrote this, and I think it came out last year, if I'm not mistaken. So let me summarize this along with a couple of his autobiographies. He wrote an autobiography, I'm going to say, in 1976, and then again in the late 1990s, not long before he died. But uh, this is, again, a, a brief summary of Johnny Cash's spiritual journey, so to speak. He starts out with his mom listening to Pentecostal church preaching be saved right now or go to hell type of preaching. They called it high-pitched, fiery, relentless harangues, which scared him quite a bit, quote-unquote. Preachers who felt that the force of the preaching would regenerate hearts, that is, man is in control of the spiritual effects. And uh, that kind of approach is not healthy as a rule. In 1944, J.R. Johnny Cash attended a revival meeting in Dias, Arkansas, while the choir sang, Just as I am, he walked forward to make a decision for Jesus in the typical American Baptist church, formerly baptized at the Blue Hole on the Taronza River. His father repented somewhat when his older son was killed, and Ray filled the pulpit for the local Baptist preacher. However, his father sank back into drunkenness, and this resulted in Johnny Cash questioning his father's salvation. Sonny James tried to encourage Johnny Cash to stay living a Christian life, even as an entertainer. Laurie still called Johnny Cash a true Christian in 1959, but that's when Cash gets involved in adultery, drug addiction, and all the rest. His first wife hung in there for a long time, but finally divorced him. Would have been in 1966, 1967, that time frame. In 1967, he went to church. A Reverend Wilson of the First Baptist Church in Hendersonville preached a sermon from the woman at the well, and Cash later told the pastor the sermon made him thirst for living water. At Folsom Prison, he was praying in the prison chapel between two of his shows. But the first real discipleship that Johnny Cash ever got, as far as I can tell, appeared to be from Jimmy Snow. Now, Jimmy Snow is Hank Snow's son, Jimmy Rogers Snow. Hank Snow, big singer in the country format in the 1950s. I believe he was from Canada. But uh, Hank Snow's son, Jimmy Rogers Snow, is a pastor of a Baptist church in the Nashville area. And so Johnny Cash and his family attend church in 1971. And Jimmy Rogers Snow is preaching from Acts 1631. He closed the service telling folks to get off the fence with your faith and make a public profession for Jesus Christ. At that point, Johnny Cash got up, announced, I'm reaffirming my faith. He said this to the whole church. I'll make the stand in case I've had any reservations up to now. I pledge that I'm going to live my life as God wants, and I'd like to ask your prayers and the prayers of these people. 
He led his family to the altar, recited the sinner's prayer. Uh, Later, Jimmy Rogers Snow said he prayed it out loud, and we all heard and saw his tears. Johnny Cash then put this inscription on the inside of his Bible. This, I believe, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he lived and died as a human, but after the third day arose from the dead and for many days walked among us, that in his glorified form he ascended into heaven where he now sits at the right hand of God the Father, which is a summary of the gospel. After this time, he writes, Bible study became important in my life. In 1971, on his ABC television program, he announced, I am a Christian, which was not taken very well. He said, ABC didn't like that. This is what he wrote in one of his autobiographies. I had one of the producers come up to me and tell me I really oughtn't be talking about God and Jesus on national television. I didn't like that. Well, then I told him, (laughs) you're producing the wrong man here because the good news about Jesus Christ is part of what I am and part of what I do. He later writes, you have to give up worldly things to stay true to your faith. You want to be Christ-like. You'd have to be a fool to give up a decade or two of record sales over your eternal salvation. Also, he talked to a college professor about Jesus on a plane out of Sweden. The professor said, this was a Jewish man, Jesus' name is on churches all over the world. And Cash responded, he wouldn't want his name on some of those churches. Well, the professor asked him, why not? He said, Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, the Messiah. He submitted himself to be killed as a sacrifice for mankind's sin and to prove his divinity arose from the dead. The reason he wouldn't want his name on some of those churches is that some of them reduce him to a mere prophet or a philosophizing do-gooder, denying his divinity, his virgin birth, and his resurrection. Well, the 1980s didn't go very well for Cash. As far as we know, he wasn't very solidified in any church. His new wife, June Carter, almost divorced him several times. He later commented, The problems with Christians and me as a Christian was that the alteration of the mood vexes the spirit of communication and worship and commitment to God. It's like anything else that can come between you and God as an idol to take the place of God. It's a road to ruin. So that would have been, you know, his writing in the mid-1990s. And then in 2011, I did not know this until today, John Schneider, the co-star of Dukes of Hazzard, said he lived with Johnny Cash for a year. And if somebody as rough around the edges as Johnny could say that Jesus was his savior, there had to be something to it. If Johnny Cash felt the need to keep a Bible in the trunk of his Mercedes next to his fishing pole, (laughs) there had to be something to it. It was Johnny who led me to Christ, said John Schneider. Johnny and I would be fishing, and suddenly he'd look at his watch and start heading back to the house, saying uh, something about needing to spend time with the Lord. It intrigued me that this rough man's man would have those priorities. In his last words, Johnny Cash was asked by his sister if he was afraid of death. And he said, no, I can hardly wait to be with the Lord. He asked her, if you walked the shores of Galilee, and you looked up and saw Jesus walking towards you, and you knew he was going to say one thing, what would you hope he would say? She said, I asked Johnny how he would answer. And he had tears rolling down his face, and he said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. Well, that's it. That's that's the story of Johnny Cash, uh, based upon his autobiographies and this latest book from Greg Laurie, which I believe just came out in 2021. 
That's the summary of Johnny Cash's spiritual life. Now, one of the most interesting exchanges comes in his last autobiography. He asks of his father, and this is just sort of asking out loud as he's writing this book, is my father redeemed or not? Was he justified? Was there justification that led him to sanctification? For that's the whole point in justification and forgiveness. The line goes from redemption to justification and then eventually sanctification through righteousness with God. Was daddy's conversion real? It's interesting he comes through what we would call the ordo salutis or the order of salvation. Speaking of redemption slash regeneration and justification, which is the forgiveness of sin and the right standing before God, and then sanctification, which is, of course, where we uh, we cease from sin and more and more conform to God's standards of righteousness. So he, he goes over this. He's, he wonders about this. But then he asks the same question about himself. Is that how it is with me? Was I evil and then made a change, walked the line, was a godly man, then slipped and fell and became an evil man again? How many times has God picked me up, forgiven me, and set me back upon the path and made me to know that it was all right? Very interesting. That sort of summarizes his spiritual life as I see it. Uh, So, you know, in conclusion, Adam, it's not how you begin, it's how you end. And that really is the story of the thief on the cross. It's, It's a question of whether or not there was genuine faith in Jesus Christ and whether there was any new life in him or in me or you. That's what matters. We all want to end well. We want to finish well. We want to run the race that Paul describes in his epistle. That will become part of our legacy not just our salvation and our sanctification, but how we emulate Christ before our children and our grandchildren, our spouse. It is an honor to carry the name of Christ, to be his ambassador in this world. But as a friend of mine who was a groomsman at my wedding in 2006 said in the manhood celebration Saturday night before my son, who just turned 13, we need to redeem the time. Because just last year, he buried his 48-year-old son who died of a heart attack. We don't know how many days the Lord will give us. And we need to redeem the time. We need to invest in things that have eternal significance. Amen. Well, let me close with a thief on the cross. Remember the first thief said, if you be the Christ, get us down from here. Save us from this death. But the other one looked at Jesus on the cross. He saw the sign above Jesus' head, the sign that read, this is the king of the Jews. And he believed it. And he said, this is the king. He is the king. They are crucifying the king. And and now listen to what the thief said to Jesus. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You see there, he saw the sign above the head of Jesus. This is the king. And he then looked down towards Jesus and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He believed in Jesus. He believed that he was the king. He was the Christ. He was the Messiah. He was the Savior. And, and Jesus didn't just come to save us from our immediate trial, disease, or even physical death. He came to save us from everlasting death and give us everlasting life and bring us into a kingdom that will never pass away. And now hear the response of Jesus to the man on the cross. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Now, here's what's shocking to to us, to me and to every one of us. The man doesn't have to exhibit works of repentance. He doesn't have to earn his way into the kingdom. He's not really taking a big risk by, by saying this. He's not going to be beaten up for supporting Jesus. The other man 
isn't going to sock him in the face for what he's saying. He just believes that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. He didn't ask Jesus to save him from the trial he was going through at the moment. He just simply asked him to remember him when he came into his kingdom. And Jesus promised him that he would be with him in paradise today. Immediately, the man was going to be with Jesus in heaven. Well, friends, that wraps up this edition of the Generations broadcast. I hope this has been interesting, encouraging, inspiring. I hope this is bringing you back to the gospel message. And that's really what we need more than anything else. We need the pure gospel message, which preaches the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and calls men and women to true faith and repentance before the living Christ, the Son of God, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. Well, that wraps up this edition of the Generations Broadcast. This is Kevin Swanson and Adam McManus inviting you back again next time as we continue to lay down a vision for the next generation.